verses 36 through 50. I'm going to read God's Word real quick. Starting in verse 36. Luke says this, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Jesus said, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord that endures forever. Let's ask God's help in understanding and applying it. Lord Jesus, we come before Your Word. And Lord, we acknowledge that we need Your Holy Spirit to open Your Word to us that we can understand it. But Lord, also use it as a sword to pierce us deeply. As a light to expose the darkness in our hearts. And would you help us to apply your word this morning that we may be made new in your image. We ask it in your name. Amen. So I think this is probably my one of my favorite stories of Jesus in all of the Bible. Uh, I think it's an absolutely beautiful story. And what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be trying to peer into the deepest parts of Jesus' heart for sinners. Um, but as we do that, let's start just kind of by setting the scene, right? This is a narrative, and so we want to sort of wrap our mind's eye around this story and what's going on. So Luke begins by telling us that one of the Pharisees, a man named Simon, not to be confused with all the other Simons in the New Testament, this is a Pharisee named Simon, invited him over to eat dinner. And so in Jewish culture in the first century, their dinner scene would have looked very, very different from our dinner scene. Uh, the way this dinner would have looked is entirely different in two main ways that are pretty important to this story. The first, it says that Jesus was reclining at table. All right, now, what does that mean? All right, is Jesus sitting in a lazy boy at the table? No, right? Jesus is not sitting in a recliner at the table. When, he, when we say He's reclining at table, in first century Jerusalem, to go and eat dinner at someone's house in luxury, you would have a table sitting on the ground surrounded by cushions. So we weren't sitting at a table in chairs. 
You would come in and lean in towards the table with your feet behind you, your head up near the table, and you would prop up on one arm and you would eat with your free hand. And this was what it meant to recline at table. This was a a luxury dinner experience. And so secondly, the second way their dinners look very different than ours, and this is the one that would give a lot of us a tremendous amount of anxiety, when you invited someone over, particularly a high-profile, distinguished guest, people would show up unannounced. Right, So you would have the table set and you would have your invited guests that would come to partake in the meal. But then you would also have a crowd show up and basically sit around the walls of your dining room to listen in on the conversation. Now in Western culture, right, that would be an incredibly rude thing to do if you throw a dinner party for somebody and 20 or 30 people show up to watch you guys eat. Right, It's really awkward. But in this culture, this was not awkward. In fact, it was a sign of incredible respect for the host and for the guest. The Pharisee was a respected teacher of the law. This was the religious authority for their day. And Jesus, his fame is spreading like wildfire at this point. Earlier on in this chapter, at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus has just raised a dead man in front of a crowd. And so his popularity is taking off. And so now you have the religious authorities inviting over this man who's performing miracles unlike anything we've ever seen. So it would have been very important for you to be at this dinner. You would want to hear the conversation that's taking place. And so undoubtedly this drew quite a crowd. And even though this would have been expected, what happened at dinner was rather unexpected. And so where are we going this morning? What's, what's our goal? This morning, uh, we want to look at this interaction between Jesus and the woman that shows up at this party. And as I said, we want to peer deeply into the heart of Jesus and see the way he responds to the sinful woman. And there are three takeaways I want us to walk away with this morning. First is pure worship on display. Second is self-righteousness evidenced. And third is the root of true worship. And kind of our thesis that I try and give you guys when I preach, the the thesis that's going to guide us through this passage is this. Experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus frees our hearts to worship Him lavishly. If you want to kind of summarize today's message in a nutshell, that's it. Experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus frees our hearts to worship Him lavishly. And so what happens that's so unexpected at dinner? Let's start with point number one, pure worship on display, verses 36 through 38. I'm going to read it one more time. So, sorry, we'll begin in verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city. So just sitting at the table, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So Jesus is sitting there having dinner, a high-profile event, and his feet are behind him and a crowd's watching this conversation, the meal take place, and this woman comes in... And she's only identified as a sinful woman. We don't know her name and we're not explicitly told what her sins are. We just know that she's called sinful. And Jesus describes her later in the passage as having many sins. But we see by the way the Pharisee reacts to her, this woman clearly had a terrible reputation. So it makes me think this was not one of the respectable sinners. This was someone who was particularly sinful in culture's eye. 
Most likely this woman was a prostitute. She was a sexual sinner. This is someone who would have been utterly disgusting to all the distinguished guests here and society as a whole. And she comes into this party, a place where she probably wouldn't have been very welcomed, and she does the unthinkable. She comes up behind Jesus to his feet and begins to weep over his feet. And as she does, having no towel, she lets down her hair and begins to wipe his feet with her hair. And after that, she takes an expensive alabaster jar full of fragrant perfume and breaks the neck of the bottle open and proceeds to pour this ointment on Jesus' feet. And then she kisses his feet in the presence of this dinner crowd. She's breaking all the rules of decorum. Uh, this, This would have been not only highly unexpected, but it would have also been inappropriate in the eyes of everybody watching. And the funny thing is, Jesus doesn't stop her. This woman is breaking all the rules about social interaction with a distinguished guest. All the rules of interaction for a woman in this culture. And Jesus doesn't stop her. And we'll talk about why in a second. But what I don't want you to miss here is that her pure worship was costly. In a couple of different ways. Number one, right, there was a social cost. That This was a woman of ill repute. She had a terrible reputation. And so think about for her what that experience must have been like. For her to walk into the home of a Pharisee, the teacher of the law, supposedly the most righteous person in the city. And she walks into his house past all the guests that would have been giving her terrible glances, judging her based on her sin, scoffing at her, probably even questioning, why are you here? Go home. And she comes anyway undeterred. But there was a social cost there. This would not have been a comfortable thing for her to do. And not only that, but there was also a financial cost. The the ointment that she rubs on Jesus' feet would have cost roughly a year's worth of earnings. This was expensive stuff. And she doesn't hesitate to break the bottle open and to spend it all on Jesus. There is a lavish worship here. There's a financial cost and a social cost. And neither of these deterred her in her worship. She is worshiping without restraint, without reservation. And Jesus is about to explain the cause of her lavish worship. But first, let's look at Simon's response. This is point number two, self-righteousness evidenced. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. There's a lot in that verse. Simon reveals much here about his intentions behind this dinner and the sin in his heart with this one thought. So let's start with his intentions for this dinner. Right, what, what exactly were Simon's intentions in having Jesus over for dinner? Was he like Nicodemus in John 3? Someone who was curious and maybe teetering right there on saving faith? Or was he like the rest of the Pharisees who were constantly trying to trap and discredit Jesus? Well, in this moment, I believe that Simon sort of tips his hand and reveals why he had Jesus over for dinner. Jesus confronts him later in the passage over the fact that he failed to wash Jesus' feet, failed to anoint his head, and failed to kiss him when he arrived. These were customary practices when hosting a a distinguished guest. It was a sign of honor. 
When you had a distinguished guest over, if you wanted to show them honor, since people weren't driving vehicles, right? You, you were walking on sandy, dusty roads and sandals. Your feet were nasty. And so when you came in, one of the first things you would do was you would wash their feet. You would greet them with a symbolic kiss and you would then anoint their head. And Simon failed to do each of these to Jesus. I don't believe that someone as high profile as Simon the Pharisee would just simply forget to do these things. So what is his intention? Why did he have Jesus over for dinner? The fact that Simon failed to do these things, it shows, I believe, that he is withholding honor from Jesus because he wants to see if Jesus is worthy of honor. The reason why Simon fails to anoint his head, the reason he fails to wash his feet, the reason he fails to kiss Jesus when he arrives is because he wants to hang back and actually see, is Jesus the real deal? Is he really a prophet? Is he on our team? Is he worthy of honor? And here's what I want you to notice about that. It's just a brief kind of side note. Jesus knew Simon's heart. Jesus knew that he was essentially coming to this dinner to be put on trial by a creature that he made. I hope you note the irony in that. This man's here to test Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus knew Simon's intentions. He knew this dinner was going to be patronizing. It was going to be a cool reception. This was not going to be an honorable dinner. And what's amazing about Jesus is that he went anyway. Jesus knew the kind of reception he went and that that he was going to get and that didn't deter him. His heart yearned for the salvation of the self-righteous Pharisees just as much as it yearned for anybody else's salvation. Jesus willingly went to this Pharisee's house just like he willingly reached out and touched lepers and dined with sinners. It was so he could show his love and offer forgiveness to the Pharisee just like he did to everyone else. But not only is Simon tipping his hand at his intentions, he's putting Jesus on trial, but he's also revealing his own self-righteousness. Right? Notice this, that implicit in his thought, when he sees this woman sitting there, pouring out worship on Jesus' feet, and it would have been an uncomfortable scene to be sure, right? It would be weird if somebody came up to you at Three Amigos and started doing this, or if you're sitting at a table and someone starts pouring ointment on somebody's feet at a table next to you. This would be strange. But Simon, in thinking to himself, there's no way Jesus could be a real prophet. Because if he was a prophet, he would know who she is and what she's done, and he would turn and go the other way. There's no way he would allow this to continue. In that one thought, Simon reveals his own self-righteousness. Implicit in his thought is the belief that he was less tarnished than the sinful woman. He fundamentally believed that because of the types of sin she had committed, she was beneath him. And see, this is one of the trademarks of a self-righteous heart. Sin is always viewed on a curve. There's always someone or some group of people that you perceive to be beneath you that is somehow harder to save than you are. Thoughts like, well, sure I struggle with this, but at least I don't struggle with that. Passing judgment on others based on what you can see while giving yourself a pass because of so-called intentions that other people just don't see. The heart that is trying to justify itself before a holy God can appeal to the law. 
Someone trying to justify themselves before a holy God cannot look at God's law and go, check. Because when we read it rightly, when we read it through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through God's law cuts us down. So the self-righteous heart, the one seeking to justify itself, has to find something. Something to get some footing. Something to stand on to feel like it can be justified. And the only thing we can do is play the comparison game. We compare our sins to other people and think, well, sure, I'm bad, but not that bad. Not as bad as that person. I don't do that particular sin. The self-righteous heart cannot do anything but look for others to feel superior to. And when we play this comparison game with our sins, we are really showing just how far we have to go in understanding the gospel of grace. Simon's self-righteousness, though, is further revealed in his ignorance of the character of God. Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is described as the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. The God who had been invisible had chose to make Himself visible in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus comes to display God's heart before a sinful, wicked humanity. And see, here's the issue is that Simon knew the Scriptures, but he didn't know God. He didn't actually know God's character because if he had, he would have seen God's very character on display in this interaction. But instead, Simon makes two foolish assumptions about Jesus. Two very faulty assumptions. When Simon says to himself, if this man were a real prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. He wrongly assumes that Jesus doesn't know what kind of woman this is. Simon wrongly assumes that Jesus is clueless about what this woman has done and who she is. And in reality, right, we know that Jesus knew this woman's sin far better than she did and far better than Simon did. No one knew this woman's sin better than Jesus did. And again, I hope you catch a bit of the humor here, a bit of the irony that while Simon is thinking to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what this woman has done. And Jesus knows what Simon is thinking and answers him. That right there should have told Simon everything he needed to know, but it didn't. So he wrongly assumes that Jesus didn't know this woman's sin. And the second thing that was very foolish of him to assume, but yet we make the same assumption, is that he assumed that if Jesus knew this woman's sin, he would be repulsed by her. Simon, in looking at this woman wrongly assumed that if Jesus knew who she was and what she had done, there is no way He would want her to touch Him. There's no way He would allow her to come and worship Him, to be that close to Him. Surely He would rebuke her and cast her out, embarrass her in front of the crowd, and get back to hanging out with the respectable people. That's not all what Jesus did. Jesus... Rather than casting her out, rather than embarrassing her, rather than siding with the Pharisee, Jesus displays warmth and compassion and He offers her forgiveness. What an incredible response. And it goes against all of our deepest intuition, all of our suspicion. We would never automatically assume that God would respond this way to us unless His Word told us. He radiates warmth and compassion to her. He assures her forgiveness. And then Jesus uses a brief parable to explain the Pharisees' cool reception of Him and the cause for this woman's praise and adoration. 
Let's read verses 40 through 50 again, or 40 through 48. And Jesus answering to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. He begins his parable in verse 41. He says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Jesus tells Simon the parable of the money lender, the two people who owed the money. One owed the equivalent essentially of 50 days work. The other owed 500 days worth of work. And Jesus asked Simon a fairly simple question. If the money lender goes to these two people and says, hey, I've forgiven both of your debts, he said, which one's going to be more grateful? Which one is going to love the money lender more? And Simon gives the obvious answer. He said, well, the one that you've forgiven more, the one the moneylender forgave more. And Jesus makes the parallel unmistakable. What had caused this sinful woman to go through the public shame of parading into a Pharisee's house and coming and worshiping and adoring Jesus in such a costly fashion? What had propelled her to do that? And Jesus says it very, very plainly. She knew she had been forgiven of much. See, she was keenly aware of the size of her debt that had been forgiven. Because she had been forgiven of much, she loved much. The reason why her worship was so enormous, so extravagant, so lavish, was because she knew that her sin was enormous and that Jesus had forgiven her lavishly. Without reservation. So her worship would be without reservation. Is that to say, though, that Simon had been forgiven little, that he needed less forgiveness? Is that why he failed to really honor Jesus? The answer, of course, is no, right? Simon didn't need less forgiveness than the woman did. What differed between the Pharisee and the woman was ultimately the fact that she recognized the enormity of her sinfulness and he didn't. There was no difference in the need of forgiveness. Her sin may have looked different. Her sin may have carried a social stigma that his didn't. But her sin was no less or no more deserving of his wrath than the Pharisees. And it was no less ready to be forgiven by Jesus than the Pharisees. Their sin made them stand on an equal playing field. The difference was that she realized that her sin was enormous and that Jesus had forgiven it. See, at some point the woman had heard the words of Jesus. At some point she had heard Him teaching and heard the message of the kingdom, heard the offer of forgiveness. And she had felt conviction over her sin. And she began to feel that she had been forgiven by Jesus. Calvin, uh, John Calvin called tears heart water. I love that. I thought that was such a neat way to put that. This woman comes in and when she's crying over Jesus, over His feet, what do her tears reveal about her heart? 
I believe her tears were revealing a heart that had truly experienced forgiveness. And she didn't know any other way to respond other than pouring out praise at his feet. Her gratitude was simply too much to contain. Not so for the Pharisee. Because he assumed that his sin was less damning than hers, less egregious than hers, he assumed he needed little forgiveness and therefore his love for Jesus was little. But hers was great. But then we see the crowd begin to murmur among themselves. Verse 49, Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And I'm inclined to think that because of the company, this is not some awestruck moment where they finally get it. I'm inclined to think this is indignation. Who does this guy think he is that he can waltz in here and forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus looks at this woman and validates what she had already experienced, assures her of the fact that she had indeed been forgiven. And in doing so, he is making an authoritative declaration that he is both willing and able to forgive sins. It's a shocking declaration that Jesus is both willing and able to forgive sins. Listen, in in closing, I'll just say this. I sincerely hope that every person in this room, every person that's part of our congregation has felt the unbearable burden of their sin, has experienced the freedom of forgiveness that leads to uncontainable, authentic worship. But I know the reality is that there are many of us that are in one of two other places than that. First, I fear that some of us may be in the place of Simon You may think very little of your sins. Surely there are others worse than me, right? Other people who have done more that needs forgiveness. I'm a good person. God and I have got things worked out. I do enough good to balance out the bad. We think little of our sins. And listen, if that's you, right on the authority of God's Word, I want to tell you that you're in a dangerous, dangerous place if you think little of your sin. This morning, I plead with you, if that's you, to cry out to Jesus for mercy, acknowledging your hard heart and asking Him to reveal the weight of sin to you. And if you will do that, let Jesus' acceptance of Simon's dinner invitation be proof to you that Jesus loves even Pharisees and He stands ready to do a saving work in you. Cry out to Him to reveal your sin. Second, second group of us, perhaps you constantly feel the enormous burden of your sin. The the load of guilt and shame just seems unbearable, but you're not quite sure how to escape that gnawing sense of guilt and shame. If you ever talk to a counselor, you ever go to a counselor, one of the things that biblical counselors especially seem to talk about is the shame cycle. Right? When we talk about the shame cycle, there's this weird thing that happens that whenever we are ashamed of something, whenever we carry the burden of shame over something, particularly sins in our life, shame has this funny way of actually making us return to the thing we're ashamed of. That, that's why so many of our deepest sins are repetitive. They seem ingrained, unbeatable. 
is because what we are ashamed of drives us back to the thing we're ashamed of. But why in the world does it do that? Well, because shame, first of all, requires medication, right? It requires a remedy, a way to sort of numb out, escape that gnawing shame that eats away at your conscience. And so we run back to the thing that we think will give us comfort. It deceives us and ends up leaving us with nothing but shame. And shame also lies to us and says that this is all you'll ever be. You can never beat this. You can never change. And so shame has this way of keeping us ingrained in this cycle. We use all kinds of medication for shame and guilt. Some carry a social stigma, some don't. But we use things like work, family, entertainment, achievement, relationships, food, alcohol, drugs, and even religion to numb out our gnawing consciences that tell us we have much to be ashamed of, much to feel guilty of. And we rationalize the persistent guilt with cliches like, well, I know that God's forgiven me, I just can't forgive myself. And folks, let me tell you, when we say that, when we say, I know God's forgiven me, I just can't forgive myself, what we're really admitting when we say that is that our view of God is far too small and our view of us is far too big. Our sins are not primarily against other people or even ourselves. Do they have consequences on those around us? Yes. Do our, do, does our sin have consequences for us personally? Absolutely. But that's not the primary offense of sin. Our sin is primarily against a holy God who has made us for Himself. And what we are desperately looking for in all of our fixes is we're actually looking for the forgiveness of that holy God. We say we're looking for the forgiveness of others. We say that we are trying to forgive ourselves. In reality, what we're always looking for is someone who knows us, who sees our sin for what it is, and has the ability and the willingness to say, your sins are forgiven. We're always looking for that. Folks, the good news is that God in Jesus stands ready and able to forgive you. If you see the enormity of your sin, you're not left trying to find ways to just numb out that sense of guilt. If you see the enormity of your sin, you can turn to Jesus for that forgiveness. This is why Jesus came to pay for egregious sins, to bring wayward sons and daughters back to the Father. So if you're in that group this morning, my plea for you is to push past your suspicions that Jesus would never accept you because you've sinned yourself beyond the reach of His forgiveness. Push past the hunch that He is unconcerned with you, uninterested in you, unwilling or unable to save. Come to Jesus this morning and find forgiveness that frees you to live a life of worship. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we so desperately need to see our sin, but Lord, we don't need to stop there. Lord, it may seem righteous, it may seem pious to stay in the cycle of beating ourselves up over our sin, wallowing in shame, finding ways to numb out our conscience, thinking that we just really need to get to a place of liking ourselves more, forgiving ourselves. Lord, what we really desperately need is we need to be assured of Your forgiveness. And Lord, fortunately for us, 
you show us exactly where to look for that assurance. You take us straight to your cross and tell us, look here. Holy Spirit, will you come and turn our hearts to the cross to see one there who is bleeding for our sin, who could have come off the cross but didn't, chose to stay there, chose to take the full weight of God's wrath, the full punishment that I deserved. Help us to keep our eyes there until tears emerge. Tears of remorse mixed with gratitude. Help us to hear those words for ourselves. Your sins are forgiven. Then help us to live a life of humble gratitude, lavish worship, unhindered praise. That we would leverage all of our lives, our family, our our job, our income, our, our free time. We would leverage it all to simply say, how can I praise you with these things? Because what you have done for me deserves all the praise I could ever give. Holy Spirit, would you do that for us this morning? It's in your name I pray. Amen. This morning we respond to God's grace through our giving. Uh, We have offering plates in the back. You can leave your gift there or you can give online. Um, With that said, we're going to sing our doxology together.